I want to say some things about all three of the readings today. But first, of course, I want to respond to your unspoken dismay in the story of Joseph. What happened to the coat of many colors? It's, it's not a misprint in today's reading. It really says the coat with sleeves. The original translations from Hebrew to English were in error when they said colorful or of many colors. Now, a coat with sleeves is not very interesting. And it would certainly never have made it into a song and a musical, let alone being referred to as a dream coat. However, apparently most coats in Old Testament times were more like capes or perhaps ponchos. So that a coat with sleeves was special, harder to make, more expensive, and thus a garment restricted to special people. It's one of the reasons Joseph's brothers were so jealous of him. And when Joseph was sent out to check on his older brothers, he might have been wiser not to have worn that coat with sleeves. For they were so jealous that they determined to kill him. The act, of course, is against their father more than against their brother. For Joseph was the beloved youngest son. And only one brother, Reuben, tried to think of a means of keeping Joseph alive. The caravan traveling to Egypt was just an apparent coincidence. It is this jealousy and the happenstance of the passing caravan that take Joseph as a slave to Egypt where his intelligence and discipline bring him to power as a trusted advisor to the Pharaoh. In next week's reading, you'll hear more of the time of famine in Canaan when his own brothers come to him for help and of other Jews who follow them to Egypt. And that's how we are later to find the episodes of Jewish slaves in Egypt and of Moses leading them back to the land from which Joseph was taken as a slave. So the jealousy of Jacob's sons precipitates a great and crucial segment of Jewish history, including the explicit recognition of their special relationship with the one God and the bestowing of the great tablets of the law to Moses. As we so often find in scripture, God uses imperfect people, even those capable of great violence, as the catalyst for moving the chosen people forward. Today's epistle is from the letter to the church in Rome, and in it we hear a straightforward laying out of the essential differences that Christianity brings to the Jews. We once, the writer says, had the law of Moses as a guide, And through the law, we were promised God's favor. But now, strict adherence to the law is not required. Now, what is required is belief in the Christ through faith. In this one passage, we hear the essential shift of belief from a long and detailed series of practices and regulations to what seems a less complicated requirement. And yet, as we can see, believing in the Christ and in the resurrection and living according to the precepts of Jesus' teaching may be more challenging than following the rules of the law. We might find it easier to obey the dietary laws, for example, than to love our enemies. And it's always a good idea to remember the world into which these teachings were delivered from the distance of history. It's possible to understand the crucial benefits of what we call the law of Moses. The Jews were a small tribe, remember, living separately from their neighbors. 
believing in the one God in a world full of gods, hoping to remain purely isolated from other people and other gods, and so the careful adherence to a set of rules unique to them was a protective cultural necessity. How different now to observe the revolutionary teachings of Jesus. He not only offered a new law, a new commandment, but taught his followers not to live in isolation, but to include the outsiders, the Gentiles, in their circle of friendship and worship. And as we hear in today's epistle, the new law is confess that Jesus is Lord and believe with the heart in the resurrection. The further instruction outlines the logical steps for the inclusion of all people. This is how to be saved, but if you can't, but you can't be saved unless you hear about Jesus. And nobody can hear about Jesus unless somebody tells them. So believers must be sent out to tell the story. And by extension, let's remember that we also hear the story of Jesus. And therefore, we are logical ones to go out and tell others the story. And the story may be unconvincing unless something about our thoughts and behaviors influence another. I like the way the author of this epistle lets us figure this out for ourselves. Most of us do try to live according to the precepts of our faith. And if you're anything like me, that's always something of a challenge. It often seems counter to our personal wishes or best interests to put others first. Humans are by nature selfish. According to a neurosurgeon's analysis I read of recently, human beings are programmed to anticipate danger and self-defense. We are not programmed in our brains and nervous systems, he wrote, for generosity and relaxation and joy. Much of so-called human nature seems to be alert for the worst and not the best. It does take conscious effort, special determination, open-hearted and handedness to live up to our work as disciples. And it takes faith that if we do that, we can make a difference in the world. Remember, it is called the good news. So in today's gospel, we have a sample, perhaps, of the faith that frees us to believe in our safety and not our vulnerability. Here are those original disciples trying to sail across the sea but encountering a storm. They are afraid. They're probably expecting the worst. Then they see their master walking toward them through the storm, over the roiling water. They must feel utterly amazed, and that emotion may replace fear for the moment. And when Jesus says, do not be afraid, and one of them, Peter, is so transformed into optimism that he steps out of the boat upon the water to walk toward Jesus. Very soon, his natural instincts take over, his faith collapses, and when that happens, his ability to do the seemingly impossible becomes, in fact, impossible. He begins to sink. Jesus lifts him up actually and metaphorically and takes them both to safety of the ship and the storm subsides. When I was a junior in college, I first attended an Episcopal church. I was seeking a faith community, but I not yet found the right one. This gospel was that morning's reading at St. Mark's Berkeley. And the preacher talked about taking a risk, trusting in Jesus, trying to cross whatever stormy sea we might be sailing on. 
Then he read again, do not be afraid. I felt a sense of relief, and I decided to come back on Tuesday evening to a beginner's inquiry class. And the rest, as they say, is history. There are so many parallels and metaphors in this passage that it's almost impossible to recount even a few. In times of uncertainty, we long to see help coming, and that image of being saved from inevitable disaster emboldened us to do seemingly impossible things. We need always to remember Jesus' admonition, do not be afraid. Whatever we may make of this episode in Matthew's Gospel, it's clearly an illustration for all who believe that the life and teachings of Jesus establish guidelines for the lives of all of us. Joseph was saved from death by becoming a slave. Then he became a man of position and power. And Peter, whose name wonderfully for this story means rock, walked on the water. We just don't know what means will be used to help us be ambassadors for our faith. But do try to figure out what good news you have to impart and take it out, not necessarily to lecture about, but to live by. Do not be afraid. Amen.